ever wonder what parenting is really like? Do you think that you're the only one that's struggling? Or have you missed out on that amazing hack everyone was talking about? Well, that sounds like you. Grab a seat and get comfy, as you'll be hearing real-life stories from parents that are on the same collective journey, a little thing called parenthood. We'll hear from parents, caregivers, and experts as we fumble through this wonderful path together. I'm your host, Rashida, and welcome to the Parents Connecting Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, you're going to be listening on a conversation with me and Shannon McNamara. She is a woman who has spent her entire 20-year career as a clinical social worker working with children specifically that have learning differences. She herself was diagnosed with a learning difference when she was younger, and so we get into her own experiences as a child and um, how she's gotten into the space that she is today. And we talk about this philosophy of connected parenting, getting curious behind what your children's behavior is, and also getting curious behind your own behaviors because they might be triggered. There might You might have your own triggers and buttons that are getting pressed because of how you yourself may have been parented. And so we talk about the dynamic from a family perspective and how to improve the family dynamic if there's friction and then and then ultimately how to help your children that may have learning differences. Um, Shannon's a great resource. Um, we're going to put all of our information in the show notes. So let's get into it. Well, hi, everyone. It's Rashida and welcome to Parents Connecting. Today, we have Shannon McNamara on the show, and she is a parent educator, educational consultant, and a clinical social worker. So she's got a lot to unpack on this show, and we're going to talk about all things relevant to parents, their education, and even your own things that you may want to address as a parent as you are parenting your, your, your children. So Shannon, thank you for being on the show. Welcome. Why don't we start out with just a little bit of background? Why don't you introduce yourself, who you are, and a little bit of history about yourself? Well, thank you so much, Rashida, for having me on today. I'm very excited. My name is Shannon McNamara. Um, I am a clinical social worker, um, trained as a clinical social worker. I grew up in the New England area um, as a child with uh, learning disabilities. Um, Learning differences is how we prefer to term them nowadays. Um, uh, Let's see, I've worked most of my career um, with children and adolescents um, in the sort of sphere of learning differences and with parents who, you know, just want to get a better handle on what parenting has to offer. And I have chosen to sort of focus a lot of my work on parents who have children with learning differences. I find that to be a really overwhelming time for parents, especially when they have a child that isn't quite what they had envisioned. That's not necessarily a, a, a good or bad thing. It's just, you know, we all have kids that are born and you have all of these ideas of who they're going to be. And when you find that that might be different um, than what you had imagined, the process that you go through um, to, to, to learn about your child in that way can be very, very overwhelming um, and scary. That's great. That's great work that you do, actually. And I think that hitting on the the vision of what you have, what you think that your children are, and then potentially what the practical and real, you know, challenges that you might have to go through. So 
one of the things that you had mentioned, so you talk about learning differences. Can we maybe unpack that term as to what, what would you define as learning differences and maybe some examples for, for people that may even not even know that their child has some learning differences? Because sometimes I think we go through life and we're trying to figure it out. Like everything is like, just you're trying to figure it out. Um, so why don't we maybe yeah, yeah unpack so that a little we, bit? When we talk about learning difference, so there are sort of two veins. Everything is sort of these days wrapped in that um, that that package with a nice bow of neurodiversity. When I talk about learning differences, I'm talking about the actual process of learning. That could be dyslexia, um, which is a language-based learning difference. Um, it could be dyscalculia, where you have difficulty with numbers um, and symbol orientation. Uh, it could be ADHD. It could be, uh, and, and ADHD is classified a little bit different. It's not considered a learning difference. It's a, it's a, it's more of a brain-based thing, but I sort of wrap it all in. It could go as far as um, ASD, autism spectrum disorder, but usually mm -hmm. there's a different track yep. you take with that. So the kids that I primarily work with are, um, or the families, I should say, that I primarily work with are ones that are going through the process of learning how their kids tick, you know, what what sparks their interest in mm -hmm. learning. They may have come from a place of, of being excited for school to start and then realizing their child is, is moving a little slower with reading or, um, or speaking like language acquisition, or they could be not paying attention in class. That could be an auditory processing thing. So really, when you look at that sort of larger package of neurodiversity it could be lots and lots of different things. My focus is really in on how the child and the how the family sort of accommodates to what the child's brain is needing at the time. I see. So for the people that you work with, is it, do the parents kind of notice it? Is it something that maybe the, the teachers bring up? At what age kind of range does this stuff start coming up and become a little bit more maybe and and I say, I'm going to say obvious, but maybe it isn't obvious. So I, I would like to understand, are these things obvious? Um, does it take time? So, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it starts off with like a kid who is a late talker. Mm -hmm. um, or um, sometimes it, it's all the kids in the group like to color with crayons, but your kid just isn't coloring with a crayon. They, they don't like to hold things. It could be a, a very, could be sensory. It could be um, hand grip. It could be like muscle weakness. Um, so, you know, some parents notice that their kid is a little bit different from what they thought as early as two years old. Um, some of them don't know that anything is going on until about fourth grade. I have found that the majority, if the wheels are going to come off the bus, the majority of kids sort of start really having some of those, a lot of those like heavier issues by fourth grade. Fourth grade, okay. And, and you're at and at fourth grade, what age, what's that age? My children aren't quite that old yet. So I'm yeah, fourth grade is usually around nine, 10. Yeah. So it's a, most, most of the times if teachers will, depending on the class size, a teacher will pull out and say, you know, that this child is just learning at a different pace. doesn't necessarily mean that anything's wrong, that they might be a, like learning to read at a little bit of a different pace, but they might be hesitant to recommend anything like neuropsychological testing or academic testing, you know, before the before second grade one, because the tests don't tend to be super accurate before some of those, you know, demographic Yep. pieces are filled in. And there is sort of a divining line between that learning to read and then reading to learn. 
piece. Mm. And so kids start to feel more of that frustration in that um, reading to learn piece where they just, they haven't really gained those skills. But when you talk to kids and, and what I do, I, I, I'm a connective parenting parent coach. Um, and so my perspective with that is that we want to learn how to talk to our kids. We want to pull our kids into, in, into uh, a collaborative experience with us where we are not the, the, we may be the, we may be sort of the leaders, but we are not the be all end all. It's not authoritarian in any of, in, in any of that way, because what we find is that kids always know when they're different. And if you can have an open conversation with them from a very, very early age, like two, three, four, they start having that sense that I, things aren't working for me the way they're working for my brother or my sister or my friend Joey or, you know, the other kids in class. But they might not be saying that because that is their normal. Oh, and so okay. if you're not having those conversations with your kids, you're not necessarily in touch with their experience in that way. Oh, interesting. And so when you say connected parenting, that is, so is that really what you just described it as it's collaborative? It's not necessarily the parent learning about something and then teaching it to their kid. It's more of a kind of a co- holistic type of view. Yeah. Okay. I think there's the big buzzword these days is uh, is the um, compassionate parenting. Oh, okay. I think the connective parenting takes it that one step further where we're not just sort of feeling compassion. Um, I, although that's a big piece of the connective parenting perspective. Um, but it's really, uh, helping guide that child and, and getting in there on a more, a more connected level. Like, what is it, what are you experiencing? Some parents get nervous when they when you talk about connected parenting, uh, where they don't want to be their kid's friend. Right. You know? Yeah. And first, I don't know that there's anything wrong with being friends with your kid. You're still the boss. You're still the one setting the bedtime and making sure that they are eating healthy foods and those types of things. But what you're doing in in that sort of connected parenting realm is offering a space for communication, um, for open communication, where there is not a fear of uh, punishment. Yeah, you know, I, and I think that that's probably different. So I, I'm in my late 30s. And I, you know, the way I grew up and the way a lot of my friends grew up is, you know, your parent just tells you what to do. And, and okay, off you go. And, if you're, and, and I grew up in a household and, I'm, and I know everybody grows up in various, obviously, households with different circumstances. But it, it definitely wasn't in that connected piece. It was it was almost really disconnected, right? Where it's like you go to school, you learn something, your parents are in one thing, and, and maybe there isn't a lot of quote shared experiences. And I do find that as I am now parenting, um, like knowing what my kids are going is um, help. It's very helpful, but it's also overwhelming. And so, what do you what would you say to parents that are you know, really, I mean, at some point it feels like you're trying to do everything, right? You're trying to be a parent, you're trying to be a teacher, you're trying to be, you know, you know, a friend or, or, you know, maybe not friend, but just friendly, let's say. And, um, and so how do you, you know, how do you navigate all that, especially then if you have a child with learning differences where you do have to, I I imagine as a parent, go through your own learning curve of figuring out, okay, I have to learn this so then I can then teach it. So is that part of your practice about, I guess, schooling your parents or like educating parents 
in terms of how and what to do. Yeah, my work specifically is focused a lot more around the parent than it is the child um, because I I find that kids actually know what they need. It's the environment around them that's sort of saying like, well, no, that's not how we learn. This is how we learn, right? And and kids, the brain wants to regulate itself. It wants to feel right. And if you go into any situation thinking like the child wants to be successful, the child doesn't want to be a disappointment. The child doesn't want to be different. The child wants to be successful. And if they're not successful, that's that's a clue for you that something isn't right. If they're not successful in whatever situation, it's not because they're being willful. It's not because they, um, you know, want to want to want to get you. It's that they something is going awry there because they want, everybody wants to be successful. So I think that the connective parenting piece really comes in is that you start off the, you lay your foundation from a perspective of we're a team. I'm not the parent, you're not just the child. We're a team and none of this works if we don't work together. So, you know, if there are, if there's fighting about, if there's fighting about dinner time, say, um, and you can sit down with your kid and say, look, this isn't working for me. I don't think this is working for you because you're upset and I'm upset. You know, not that little kids have all of that language, but you can. But they do. I think some it. of them. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. They're receptive to it, at least. You want to do it developmentally mm-hmm. appropriately. Um but if you go to them and say, like, we're, we're a team in this family. I don't do any of this without you and you can't do it without me yet. Um, and if you go into it with that perspective, you can say, what is it about dinner time that's having, that you're having a hard time? Do you not want to finish playing with your toys at that time? Would it be helpful if I gave you a five minute warning? Or uh, would you like more say in what we have for dinner um, on any given night? Should we make a menu together? Um, you know, it can be any kind of, of a collaborative experience in that way. You know, in connected parenting, we talk a lot about agendas um, and noticing our agenda as separate from our child's agenda. And as parents, we're doing a million things, right? We've got to get the kids to school and pack the lunches and get ourselves to work and think about what we're going to do for dinner that night. And we're doing that all at the same time. And that's all our agenda. But when we think about our child's agenda as being just as important to them as ours is to us, we can approach them with a little bit more courtesy and compassion the way we might with our partner or the way we might with a friend. What a different perspective. Yeah. If you just put your, if you're, we always want people to, you know, put themselves in our shoes, but putting yourself in your kid's shoes and knowing that they don't have all the other stuff that they're, that we're thinking about, it helps you focus on what is important to them. So I I do love that. Um, They have less power and control over it because we sort of pick them up and take them. Right. (laughs) I mean, think about what it would be like if your significant other just picked you up and took you someplace without your consent. I know. What that would feel like. And I'm even thinking about just, you know, you talk about like getting the kids to school, right? So like that, that mad rush in the morning, right? You get up, you're as parents, you're focused on, okay, got to get the kids breakfast. We've got to get them ready. We've got to get out the door and, you know, maybe we've got this meeting, we've got an early meeting we need to. And so you're like trying to balance it all out. And so maybe, you know, you're going to get ready. And as soon as you're done, the expectation is, well, okay, I'm done. Like you need to be ready, but that's not, that's not necessarily realistic if you haven't set the expectations. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's a helpful reminder, I think, to parents just 
agendas. I like the way that I like the way that you put that. Well, I didn't come up with that. Uh, Bonnie Harris, uh, she's the sort of creator of the connecting parent, the connected ah, okay. parenting approach. Okay. Um, but I'm a big devotee of hers. I, I love it. Give her a shout out there. Yeah. And we're going to definitely put in the show notes, a, um, a lot of references. So I would love to add all the stuff into, into the show notes. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to pivot to is the, the, um, parent education piece. I think that, you know, as children, they go to school, they learn things. There's like this, you know, curriculum of sorts, right, to get you through certain things. But as parents, there isn't a guidebook, right? Your guidebook is really what you've either experienced yourself, which may or, which may, or may not be a good um, experience or very um, holistic or, you know, or maybe just very limited, where you just only have one experience of how you grew up. It could have been a great experience, but maybe when you have children, you have a difficult, it's a very opposite experience. And so I'm a big proponent of educating yourself and as parents, but again, it can feel overwhelming. So I think this is maybe where you could talk about how you kind of, um, like if a parent comes to you, how is it that you work with a parent and how do they come, like, how do they even know, sometimes with so many resources out there, you just don't even know where to start, right? Like, so if, let's say you have a child and that there, you, you've realized and you recognize that, hey, look, my, my child has maybe a little bit of a learning difference or something that we want to address there's like Google, right? Dr. Google is like everywhere. And so where do you, how do you start? Like, how do people come to you and what would be your advice actually, if they're in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I, I come to this practice from, um, from a whole, a holistic whole family perspective where one person isn't elevated over the other person. There, there are people who are more in control than others, you know, parents pay the bills, they shop for the food, they cook, you know, so clearly there's a, there's, a power differential there. Um, people come usually end up finding me or people within the connective parenting realm, you know, unfortunately, as a last step. Yeah. Um, the first thing they do is they go to, to Google and they're saying, I am having this problem. And they go to the, the chat rooms and they'll, and they'll find out all these sort of things, well, do this with your kid and do that with your kid. Um, or they'll go and they, they'll get a book or listen to uh, listen to other podcasts about with people with different perspectives. And some of those things are great. And some of them don't work as well for your family, but will work for other families. But it's a little bit more of like stabbing in the dark. Let's see mm -hmm. what works. Yeah. Um, when you take a whole family perspective, you're taking a step back and saying, okay, what works for you? What's not working for you? what's working for your child, what's not working for your child, and what is your family like base here? Like, are, are we looking do, are there financial concerns that you need, like you can't be spending all this money right. on all of these professionals to do these things. You um, don't have the time to track down the referrals for testing or OT or speech or those types of things. So what does the whole picture look like? And then we repaint the picture, including everybody in. I think when you come to parenting, you come as an individual, right? You know, the, the, the two people come together and you come as your own unit. And then the general idea is that you're adding the child into that. You're not repainting the picture with the child in it. Like they just sort of like That's come and you yeah. don't have a you don't have any sort of book to tell you what to do some of us have had really traumatic experiences like you've said it, uh, you know in their past we look at um 
I do a lot with the ACEs framework, the adverse childhood experiences of which everybody has something in there. Um, and when you look at your experience compared to your partner's experience, you're going to come at parenting from two different perspectives, yes. right? Even if they're very, even if you're very closely aligned, it's very rare that something that bothers your spouse, you know, is going to like, everybody has their own triggers yeah. We call them buttons. Um, so, you know, it's a button if it bothers you and not your spouse, mm -hmm. right? And so that's your button. So there's something in your background that your child is triggering in that. Um, so when we look at a family or when I look at a family, I look at it from, let's repaint this picture. Let's do a portrait. You were an individual, you were an individual, and then you've added these small people who are parts of it, but you haven't sort of taken yourself out of that and repainted this whole landscape of, you know, what does that look like as a full family now? Um, so that's sort of just like a, a visual representation of how I look at it. And then we look at all the different parts and we put it together as how is this going to work together? And when I start working with a parent, you know, it, it it's a it's a process, um, especially if you are coming at it from the perspective of we now have a child who we know has a learning difference or we suspect has a learning difference. And that has thrown our ideas of, you know, Princeton out the window or, you know, we had wanted to homeschool um, forever. And I don't I know nothing about teaching a child Orton Gillingham method, you know, um, it throws it all into a mess. And in some ways, in some ways, I love that part of it because I think people don't tend to think about how they're doing things until things go wrong. Yeah, isn't that so true? Yeah. It's, so then, so it sounds like you are, at least from, from your practice and what you do, parents are coming um, as sort of a, la maybe not as a last resort, but like at that point, they've tried a bunch of things and now they've, they've come to you. Now, let's say people are listening to this and they've maybe had an inkling and they think, it, can it be used almost not as like a preventative thing, but just really as an education component to help kind of paint the picture before things are really at a place where they're just grasping at straws. Yeah, I mean, I think the connected parenting approach works for anybody at any time. I started learning about it when my when I just had had my second child. Um, I was already in I was already in the the field of mental health and the field of parent education. Um, but you know, with your first child, you're like, oh, I got this. Right. This is no problem, <laughs> right? You come in and you're like these little people are easy and I just love them and, and they love me back. And, you know, assuming you don't have a super colicky baby or, or come from a high stress area, you add that second little human in there and you realize, wow, so these two people have to figure out how to be in the same space at the same time. And I'm the person who has to hopefully keep them alive for long term and have a, a successful relationship with them. So I think in that way, it's really helpful the earlier people come into connected parenting um, and can build that really a solid foundation because a lot of people come in and they have to rebuild that foundation. Yeah. And there's trust that has been lost with the child and there's trust that has been lost with your partner. And you may have lost trust in the system around you, whether that's the school system or the medical system or um, uh, extended family who doesn't believe um, we find that a lot that the, the extended family 
may think that you're overreacting to something that's really normal. Yeah. How do you deal um, with and, that? How do you deal with that? You know, you just, you listen, par a parent always knows, you know, there are so many parents who I have talked to that have said, you know, I, I called the doctor about this thing that was happening, you know, say their, their kid had a food allergy and we're and we were infants and they were throwing up all the time and the doctor was like well baby spit up yeah we've had and that I've like, had experience myself yeah yeah it took months to take months, months to bear. yeah and it's so hard and then you feel like you question yourself right and then you you lose trust in them because your child has then suffered for however long it's taken and then you feel guilty about them right. suffering because you didn't listen to your own intuition so a parent i feel like always knows you know your child and i think great respect has to be given to a parent who is coming and seeking help at any time because they are seeing something different in their child right like not being dismissive like really listening with open ears and yeah. like hearing them out because i think that's probably what parents want because because as parents you really are it's you're kind of winging it right you're learning you're learning on the fly and if you can't even trust what you are seeing yourself it's already hard enough i think especially if you have maybe an inkling or you have a child that's got confirmed like learning differences it's i think it's already hard enough to process that and then when you are trying to go out for help if somebody comes to you and says, oh you know they're kind of like that's not really a big deal that I feel like is like traumatizing in and of itself because you lose traction and then and then maybe you're, as you said you know time passes and it, and you feel guilty of well gosh I, I I thought something was wrong but nobody listened and maybe I should have tried harder and so then there's probably this like really push and pull um, that goes on with the parent themselves and so one of the things you had mentioned was about um, you said adverse childhood what was the what was the term ace it's aces, aces. adverse childhood adverse childhood experiences experiences okay that's yeah. an interesting thing that i like to explore a little bit because as you mentioned so each individual comes into or you know a family unit and like you said each person has their own triggers and so do you, what what is what, how do you work with parents through that is that like a therapy or do you talk through that or do you refer them out okay. and and do parents know that they have their triggers i think that's probably part yeah. of the identification of it yeah i think most parents don't know that they have the triggers i think most parents, certainly not all parents, because some um, childhood experiences, you can't, you know, it's not linear, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like some things are, are much more significant than others. Um, so sometimes it's a matter of saying like, this is this is above my this is above what I can do within the family sphere. Um, you need to get some private help and, and I make referrals for that kind of thing. But most of the time, I think parents come in and um, you know, we're sort of socialized, at least in my age group, um, to think of parents as being external from child, mm -hmm. right? Um, and our experiences as being sort of siloed or external from everybody else's experiences. I think one of the things that works a little differently in the connected parenting sphere is that you're not looking at the child's behavior as, um, as a problem that needs to be fixed. You're looking at it internally, like why is the child's behavior affecting me in the way that it's affecting me? And what is the child's behavior saying about what they are experiencing? Mm. So, so it's all cues. So it would be like, um, 
a child fighting to to put their shoes on in the morning before getting to work right and perhaps you know you don't maybe realize it but you were always rushed out the door you were always sort of put in the car being forced to go to soccer practice or or to school early because your parent was was working a lot and you weren't seeing that parent as much so inside you're being triggered is like well i got to get to all these things these are my expect these are the expectations of me this is what's being put on me right and your child's experiences if I don't put my shoes on, I can stay here and love mommy a little longer, or I can play with my Legos a little bit longer. Right? So we're being triggered in a negative way based on whatever our childhood experience might be. Um, and they're being triggered in a negative way because that means they're losing some, something or somebody that time that they love. Maybe it's a temperament thing for them and we want to take into account your temperament, the child's temperament, and how those things work together because you deal with situations differently. So we come to it from a perspective of not looking at, um, we wanna fix the child's behavior. The child's behavior is their language. We come to it from the perspective of what is our child telling us and how are we receiving that message? And if we're not receiving that message well, what is it in us that's that's being triggered. Um, so you help identify it. It sounds like maybe like you, somebody would maybe come in and would say, just like as an example, the shoes or like mealtimes, I think it's a struggle for a lot of parents. Maybe their kids are being very loud and, you know, talking all the time. And maybe their parent is like, maybe they've got sensory issues where they're just, it's, oh, it's too loud and like, be quiet, you know? And so it sounds like you help translate that situation what it is could be for the for the child and what it could mean for the parent and then it sounds like that, that then gets explored yeah i think the parents who come in and they get really frustrated are the parents that come in wanting um a fix mm. wanting to know you know why is my kid doing this and how do i get it to stop yeah and that's not what this is. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't know that that ever really works because I think when you punish kids, they become better. They become better at being sneaky yeah. because they still want what they want. Because why wouldn't they? Um, and uh, so you're not really fixing that. You're just sort of deferring the problem. And when you come at it from a perspective of like, okay, let's communicate and figure out like why this is happening without that fear of um, the child being in trouble. Uh, uh, and you've set that foundation doesn't mean that they're not going to lie. They're still going to be kids. Right. You know, we're not saying that kids aren't going to be kids, um, but we're not looking at it from the perspective of um, we need to control the situation. So how do you then what's your what's your process like? So let's say um, the situations that we just mentioned in terms of what is the what do you how do you guide parents in terms of if because I'm sure that everybody has a desire to they do want that behavior or something that want it to work better, right? Maybe not change it. So what, it, how do you guide parents? What do you, outside of educating them, okay, this seems like this is maybe a trigger for you, or is it just the concept of like repainting the picture and trying to get them to see a different perspective or, which is, which is hard in the moment. I think you can learn about all this stuff, but then when you get triggered, it just boom, goes out the window. Um, and so how, how do you work with parents with these difficult situations? I mean, and I I am working primarily with people um, whose kids are neurodiverse or have different learning differences. And so 
what they're going through is a little bit different. And I think most parenting perspectives don't take neurodiversity into account, um, which I think is, is a, is a problem. And yeah, we did a whole episode on neurodiversity and yeah, it's, it's really important. Yeah. They don't look at that. And a lot of, a lot of them also don't look at, um, cultural differences, community cultural differences. And I think that's the benefit of this perspective is that you can look at things from a very, um, cultural perspective and neurodiverse perspective because you're not looking at fixing. You're looking at changing the dynamic within. So when a family comes to me, I generally speak with the parents, the parent or parents first. And I ask the questions like, you know, what's going well? What's not going well? We, we have an hour and a half conversation. Well, the initial one is just like 30 minutes, get to know you. Do we want to work together? After that, you know, what, what's working and not, not what's not working? What are the triggers for you? Why do you think that they're not working? Uh, have you looked into, is there um, a learning challenge or a, a sensory challenge? You know, those types of things. Um, we get a little bit more into their background, where they grew up. Is there, uh, is there any um, incongruence between um, uh, the parents? Yeah. Um, or, you know. Parenting styles. Or, parenting yeah. styles, that kind of thing. So we start there. We lay our foundation there. Um, most of the time I have a, a, a pre-existing neuropsychological evaluation. That's usually where people start when they're referred to from the school. And I will be able to go through that and sort of get a lot of great information about the child. Um, and that's my real, that's really my first experience of the child. I don't want to, I don't want to move into the child's world because they, they don't need to see a stranger like in this really, we want to work on the parent to connect to make those connections. And I do work with the children, but that's not my first, you know, I'm not looking to fix the child. Right. I'm looking yep. to um, create the whole picture for the family. And so I'll go through the neuropsych and we will. And can go we, and, and sorry to interrupt. So for, as far as a neuropsych evaluations, or can you talk a little bit about what that is for parents that maybe haven't done that or haven't gone through that as to what they could expect potentially if they have maybe a child that has, you know, just that process and, and then maybe we can go forward. Sure. Yeah. A, a neuropsych evaluation, it's, you, it's done by a neuropsychologist or a psychologist. You need to have a certain credentialing for it. Um, in some states, the schools provide them um, as a way of sort of leveling that equity field um, for all students who might be identified. Some states, um, all neuropsychs need to be private, you know, depending on what state you're in, you might, um, you might approach the, the whole area differently. In some places you can get insurance coverage, some you can't. What the neuropsych covers is it looks at um, a, a bunch of different things. They, they'll run batteries of tests. Um, there are usually a few that are sort of like the baseline tests, like the whisk or the waist or the, the brief. Um, those are like the baseline tests. And those look at sort of general cognitive functioning. What is the um, you know, I don't like IQ, the, um, the intelligence quotient. I don't think it's very valid, but it does give you a sort of perspective of like what direction you're going with things. Um, and those tests sort of map out how information is being processed in, in the brain. Um, it, is the child hearing language and then interpreting language in uh, an efficient manner? Is the child um, seeing um, visual stimuli and making meaning of that in another part of the brain? 
Um, how are their sound acquisition? Can they follow a linear story from front to, to back? in that way. So that's where it starts. And then they it, they branch off into other models. Like, is there attentional information here that we need to look at? Um, is there auditory processing stuff that we need to look at? And neuropsychologists don't do that piece of it, but they have cues in there to know if we should be looking for auditory processing things. Very often, I think, this is my personal belief, um, that I believe that a lot of ADHD is misdiagnosed, that is actually auditory processing, but the two are very closely linked. You can have auditory processing delays and ADHD, but a lot of it looks very similar and an audiologist or somebody more trained needs to do an auditory processing. So, you know, a, a diagnosis of ADHD isn't necessarily ADHD. There generally needs to be some other kind of rule out, but it's another step. Um, anyway, going back to the neuropsych, uh, then there's a whole educational evaluation in there where they look at like, well, what are their ability to um, compute things or to read things depending on their age. So it's a, it's a really large battery of tests that gives you a really full cognitive profile. And does the child know, I guess I'm curious, like, I'm well, A, what's sort of the range? I'm sure this the ages range for when people have these tests. And then is it for a person that may be on the fence of maybe doing a neuropsych? Because that sounds like a, not like an, it's not like an invasive procedure in the sense of that they're going in, you know, internally, but, you know, is a child, is this like hours long of somebody sitting in, in, in a room, like, you know, answering all these questions or what does the actual test itself, like, how, how does that work? Yeah, the testing is is it's big. Um, it's usually somewhere between, you know, eight and 12 hours long, depending on what batteries they, you know, provide, depending on the age of the child, you would come in uh, for two days, you know, you could do it in two blocks, um, or it could be longer than that. I've seen people separate it out into to four or five sessions of two hours versus, um, you know, two sessions of four hours. Um, I personally, I prefer a shorter, like a longer amount of time in fewer days because I think that's less disruptive for the child, but it depends on what the child's working with. You, There are some early tests you can do for kids who are under the age of six or seven, um, but the most kids aren't referred for testing until about second grade. So I would say that's about seven, eight, um, because that's when those language skills are first forming and you can see like how they're starting that learning process. Um, that's helpful, I think. Um, so, so sorry. So you were talking about um, once you get the, so then you work, somebody, your clients come in with this evaluation and um, you'll use that as maybe one of your starting points, it sounded like. Yeah. So with the neuros, I actually use that as a as a pretty significant tool. Um, you don't need that. Um, I use it as a tool for the parent to be able to understand the child as an individual. I think a lot of parents get these medical reports and the neuropsych in particular is pretty big. It uses a lot of different words um, that are probably not in the vernacular of any particular parent, um, unless they have some experience with it. Um, I think most neuropsychologists do a really good job of their, um, their feedback sessions of explaining things, but you don't know the questions you have if you've never had a situation like this. 
So I take a three-step um, uh, sort of run at a neuropsych where I have parents initially do their emotional read. And that's where they just, they just read it and they have no judgment. They don't try and figure anything out. They just notice what they feel about that report. Um, some of them can be like, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought. And some of them can be in tears. And even parents who know that there is most likely something going on because maybe they are dyslexic or they have had similar things or they have a, a significant a, a partner or a sibling with similar challenges. Um, it affects you emotionally and you have to address that first. Like what, what is this hitting for you? Um, why is it hitting? What are your, what are your worries about that? Um, so that's the first read. The second read we go through and we look at all of the beautiful things. Um, and we highlight that in big bright colors. And we say, you know, like, because they, the nurse psych reports talk about the child's temperament and were they polite and were they dressed well and you know did they show persistence or you know it can be anything and you just you go through that and you say look at how amazing this kid is you know this kid this is an amazing kid this is somebody who tries really hard or that um, has a lot of energy and really puts their effort into sports or is very kind to animals you know it'll lay out a lot of that stuff and then your third read, you go through and say, okay, what are the challenges here? What do we really want to understand about this child? And, and what are they trying to communicate to you? And that's that third piece of it. And we, we take the good things that we know about that child and we, we match them up to the things that are a challenge for them. And then we teach the parents how to um, set up systems for them or understand the child in um, a, a more effective way so the child feels heard. You know, if the world is going to beat them down, the home should be the place where they feel heard and valued and they can come with their challenges and say, this isn't working for me and I'm really frustrated and I'm having a hard time not pushing this person or not, you know, throwing my papers at something or not giving up entirely. Um, you know, if you understand, if you, the parent, understand um, the profile, the background of the child and how they fit and that their place is secure in the family and that they are loved and respected and valued as an individual within your system, you can go and advocate for them. You can teach them to advocate. They can do anything. Yeah. And so how long do you work with, um, work with your parent, you know, your, the parents that you work with and does it, I mean, imagine that it would evolve because if you do have a learning difference, I would I would assume this is an assumption you can correct me, but that it maybe stays with them or maybe you have. Um, and so does it evolve over as the, as they age? And then do you work with them through this whole period or do you provide like, oh, these are the things that you should look for as they get older? How does that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, someone with a learning difference has a learning difference forever. Um, it's the way your brain is structured, it's the, the chemicals that are there, it's how you're born. Um, doesn't mean that it uh, impairs you necessarily in any particular way. It doesn't mean that it, it affects your life every day. Um, uh, it's, just, it's just a part of being us. Um, and so when somebody works with me, the initial package, the initial big bulk of things is about 15 hours of work that we do together. Um, and so that's like one sort of package I'll put together because that gives you that whole portrait. 
And then, you know, people have access to me for the rest of their child's academic career, however, however long they need it. They can always come back. And from there, we do just sort of an hourly, like, what, what are you needing now? And how can I support you? I think one of the big things is that parents work so hard to support and protect and advocate for their kids, but who's supporting, protecting and advocating for the parents? Yeah, that's so important. I'm so glad you said that because I, I do, like, I, I think that parents need just as much of assistance or resources and help guidance because the, you know, the collective, the tribe is like kind of dissipated, right? We're all like these independent units and there is a lot of expectations and that we have our, of ourselves and that are put upon us like, oh, okay, well, you're, you've got to be doing this. So I love that, um, that you're really obviously helping the family, but then really focusing on the parents because they are your sort of their first line of defense for, for a lot of these matters. So that's really great. Yeah. And, and I do make a, a line. There are people who are professional advocates out there. That's not my job. My job is to teach the parent how to advocate for their child so that their child can advocate for themselves. Yeah. And so I am not the right person to come to if you are somebody who likes to outsource um, the stuff. I am the person who you come to when you want to learn how to do this and do this at a high level for so, your family. I mean, it's, it's some of the things similar. It's like almost like you're coaching, like you're coaching the parents to help, to help them get information and feedback and then kind of put that into their family unit. Okay. That's yeah. great. Um, and then you had mentioned um, that, so you, you've been in this learning difference sphere for a long time and you mentioned that you were, you had some learning. Do you want to share about kind of your own experience and how you got into this, um, this field? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I was um, diagnosed as dyslexic um, very, very early on, you know, so I'm, I'm in my mid forties. Um, and the laws sort of didn't come about until 1976, right about the time I was born. And so the the whole field of education was very well meaning and very well intentioned, uh, but came to students with learning differences from a deficit model. Um, and so that was the sort of atmosphere that I grew up in. I never felt deficit. <laughs> um, and I think part of that is because I grew up in a, in a more rural environment um, in New England. My school system uh, would be considered similar to a private school system now, but it was public. Think schools in, as a whole have gotten a lot larger. And I had incredible supports, even though it came from a, 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 a deficit model. Like, you know, well, you have to remember that like these things are harder for you. Um, and so what's different? So in that particular, what's different yeah. now? So the model now is really a, 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 um, a more progressive skills. I don't know. I can't think of the word right in the top of my head, but there, you know, it's more of a, a um, how to just a, work a, around the differences rather than, oh, you have to do something to make up for it. Is that, yeah, it's more that there are no, it, it's not, it's that you are who you are. Um, and you are good as you are, you don't need to fit into the box. Um, you, we need to, the box needs to figure out, you know, there's, there's a big enough space here where we can approach you from the way that you need to be approached because this is a, this is not, everybody learns differently. Um, and the only reason we sit in classrooms the way we do now is because of the industrial revolution 
and parents going to work and, you know, having a space for the kids where they could learn the, the basic reading, writing and arithmetic. It was never done that way beforehand. So the mentality, the schools are still there and the schools are getting larger, but the mentality has progressed a lot um, to be uh, much more progressive. So I started seeing that change right about when I got to high school. So so mid 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, it started this shift away from a deficit model started. And then technology started being introduced. So by the time I was in college, there was more technology. There was reading software. Before that, I had always, um, I, I'm a much more um, visual, auditory, um, uh, tactile learner than I am being able to sit and read a book. And so I would get together with uh, study groups and I would ask really interesting questions and they would all tell me everything that they read, all the knowledge that they had gained, they would just tell me and I would absorb it all. Um, and so that's how that piece started. I think that's a, a very common story for a lot of people who were diagnosed at, a, you know, who are my age at a, at a young age where they use these sort of adaptive skills um, and we all kind of thought like, oh, we're cheating because we're not uh, reading the material. We're not, we're not doing it the way everybody else is doing it, but we're really successful. So there's this like little thing in our brains that we're like, oh, you're cheating yeah. because you're not doing the same work as everybody else. But it's an adaptive measure. And all these kids have these amazing adaptive pieces to them that they have guilt and shame about. Yeah. And, and so when you were younger, so, well, maybe we can just take a moment to talk about what dyslexia is for the folks that don't maybe that aren't aware of it or is it relevant to them. And, um, and as they, so I always like to put a little education component in here. And so what is dyslexia and what are some of the challenges and how do you, and how did you adapt to that when you were younger? Yeah. So dyslexia has become this sort of like, um, you know, bucket term for language-based learning differences. The old school thinking, um, and it was really done as, as an example of what it could be like, would be like the reversal of letters. No, we don't think about it that way anymore. Dyslexics, not all dyslexics reverse letters. Um, you know, and along with, and some countries don't even see dyslexia as a thing because they are they're more symbol oriented if you oh, look at yeah. you know the example that i really like is that if you take a chair and you turn a chair upside down it's still a chair right but like if you take a p and you turn it upside down it's a it's a b so that whole reverse our brains aren't sort of intended to do that so to use that as like the scale for dyslexia is um, not really accurate um, for some people. It's just it's how you process letters and sounds, and how you put those uh, phonographic um, the, the letters and the sound symbols together. That that would be sort of the characterization of dyslexia. Um, I think is, is is putting those to be able to make meaning of sound symbols and words. Okay. Um, I feel like that's not super clear, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think accurate. if so, as I come across different topics, you know, if you're on the periphery, like you said, like dyslexia, for because I, I I don't know much about it, I'm very ignorant, other than what is sort of out there as, oh, it's the reversal of letters. But I feel like it's so much more than that, just like as in the term neurodiversity, we talked about this, it's like, you know, where there's this general broad, oh, it's just people think differently, but it's, but it's a lot more than that. And so, um, 
so I think that just understanding the terminology is helpful that so that when you talk to other people or in this realm that you have a little bit deeper knowledge as to like what what is it other than just that you know like tip of the iceberg like that might not even be accurate right it could be an old school way of thinking and a new and and what we've learned and evolved since then yeah yeah I I, I think I think that the term dyslexia is just an easy way of understanding any language-based learning difference that you have, you know, and there are, there are nonverbal learning differences and that's a different category. And they're like, there are different things, but I think is any language-based learning difference when it comes to words and sound symbols um, would be under that banner of dyslexia. When you actually look at a neuropsych report, they might put the word dyslexia in, but it's not often actually categorized as dyslexia, you know, because that's a, as a specific sort of code. So when I when I went to grad school, uh, my first internship was at a school for kids with learning disabilities. Um, and I'd never seen I'd never known that these had existed before that there was a specialized education for really typical smart kids who happen to learn differently. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing. This is like so cool. And I started being able to see um, through my social work um training what these neuropsych reports were all about and all the amazing things before that i had only ever seen my own um, and i was very familiar with that and very familiar with the terminology and had been in um, all the special ed meetings from the time i was maybe seven or eight um, going up so i was very familiar with that and i could see all of the beautiful things it was saying about these kids in these reports but most people don't read the whole report most people go right to the uh the data at the end and they look at like oh where's the percentages of you know the, what's the what's the grade equivalent of the reading or what is the you know age um data around math skills um and that doesn't talk about the kid yeah it's like very statistical right just yeah very yeah. statistical and it, it you lose so much of it you lose so much of the strength based um and as we've moved from a deficit based to a strength based um, approach. Uh, that's really what we focus on. And so I had sort of kept that and it was in the back of my head. And then when I went into clinical work, I worked with um, kids who, older kids, uh, adolescents, who all had language-based learning differences as well, and were really struggling with their parents primarily. And what I was finding was that kids were okay. The kids were actually doing everything they needed to do. The parents were freaking out, but parents weren't coming in for therapy. Parents, because they had identified the child as the problem. If the child can get fixed, if the child can be better at whatever, if their attitude could be better, if their this could be better, then the whole family would work better. Um, that was their perspective. And that's wasn't, that wasn't what I was seeing. The kids were doing what they needed to do for their own educational and emotional safety. And it wasn't what the parents had expected. So that started leading me to this, you know, we need to do better for our kids. And then when I had my first child, I had noticed the same thing that other parents notice is that some of these things are different. Like this isn't, my child's not interacting with the world the way this other child is. They're not interested in books the way these other childs are, Ch child is interested in books. And we got, my first child tested very early. And even though I knew that there was a learning difference there, and even though I knew that that really isn't a big deal, I got that report 
and I read it through and I cried. And I thought, wow, I gave this to him. This is my fault. We carry all of this like guilt and shame for ourselves that if I was just more whatever, I wouldn't have passed this struggle on to them. Um, and so I had to really do a lot of figuring out for myself, like, what is that in me? What What is triggering in me? So I don't um, make him a victim in that. Um, and so that's where this all started. And then I had friends that would come and say, would you look at my report or what should I do? Or do you have a referral for me for this? Or I don't know where to go. Um, and that's how this this business sort of evolved. That's a really long story. No, it's, I mean, I think it's, no, it's not. I mean, I think it's really important because I think our own experiences paint how we, if, if you, you know, you create this business, but it, it, it paints how you interact with your, um, with your clients. You obviously have your own experience, which I think for parents, I mean, if I was, if I had, um, what was coming to you, it's so much more, um, what's the word? there's so much more relatability, right? Because you've gone through something yourself. You have a child that has a learning. So to me, I think that that actually is a wonderful thing to share and to know because it doesn't feel like it's kind of like extra, like, oh, you don't really know what this is like, right? You have that experience. And um, that sometimes even is comforting to a parent to know that, okay, because sometimes it can be lonely. You know, you feel, I mean, I know there's a lot of people going through similar things, but when you're in it yourself, and you're trying to find all the resources and do everything. And then you, and then, you know, we talked about going to the doctor. They've seen lots of, they've seen lots of parents that have gone through things, but it feels very lonely in that particular moment. So then to, to go to somebody and say, well, yeah, I understand that. And here's, you know, there's almost like this, it kind of cracks it open a little bit and allows you to be more vulnerable and, you know, share maybe more than you would um, in Cause some, I mean, I, you know, that process I'm sure is just, it's got so many emotions kind of wrapped up in it. So I like how you're, I like how even you talked about your step processes, like do the emotional read first, like get that out, understand what's, what it is for you. So, um, so that you had your own experience with that, right? Like you read, you know, going through the thing. And um, so I think that that's a really important thing and it's, um, so I'm glad you shared that actually. So, so thank you for that. And I think the thing that I want parents to hear is that, um, especially parents just getting a diagnosis, that this isn't anyone's fault. This is an evolution. I take a very evolutionary standpoint on this, um, where you know we had people who were whose brains were different to be hunters gatherers. We had medicine men. We had you know uh, the faith healers. We had all of these people, and they were in those parts of their own cultural societies because they thought differently it, th- there's there's nothing wrong with it and and yes people learn differently and that that tends to pass down in a family but maybe maybe that was your family's perspective maybe you were a healer maybe yeah. you had had maybe historically your family had adhd because they were out fighting like, exactly you know. i think that there's like a now there's a term right there's like a defi- like we we, the stuff has existed probably forever, right? It's just now we have this identifying tool or identifying name that to some people could, it almost like parses you out, but it was always there. And it's interesting because like, um, you know, I've talked to some, um, some 
the, um, I guess they're therapists or social workers where they're, they're in the neurodiverse world. And they made like an anecdotal comment to say, well, if you walk into like an engineering firm, probably 50% of them are, um, you know, have maybe, maybe they're on the autism spectrum because, and, and maybe that is or isn't true, it's anecdotal, but um, it's just the con- like the idea that our brains are actually different. And maybe because they're different, you're able to do all these things that now we just have a term associated with it. So I, I find that, yeah, I, I do think that, um, you know, like you said, like historical, it's just, it just evolved and it's just a new term and it's a new difference. And now we're, I think we're in the why phase of life as to like, what is it and why? And we want to know all the interworkings where maybe before we just kind of accepted it and like, you know, as part of, part of your life. Yeah. That kid used to be a quirky kid. Right. Now that kid carries a diagnosis. Right. Right. It's, it's all, it's an evolutionary. We've always been this way. Yeah. That's not, let's not make it more than it needs to be. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I I completely agree. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. Um, so, so as we kind of wrap this up, you know, I, I, this was really informational. I think that, um, it's a lot of stuff that I learned. I know listeners will probably have gathered quite a bit. So tell people how they can find you. I think what you do is really important. So if somebody's listening to this, you know, where can they find you, how they get the resources and then, um, maybe what would you impart them with? Yeah. Um, well, you can find me. I, I have a website, uh, curiouskidseducational.com. Um, or you can email me at Shannon at curiouskidseducational.com. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, although I don't have a, all that stuff. I don't have a huge presence, but I'm building it. Um, it's kind of a, a work in uh, process, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I love to, and people from all over the country, I do a lot of this work on Zoom when I can. I, I'm based on the East Coast and, you know, sort of my travel region is between New England, Upper New England, down to sort of the Mid-Atlantic DC area. Um, but I do most of it uh, virtual these days, as I think a lot of people do. Um, but I think what I'd like to impart to people, to, to parents, is that... Um, is that we work better as teams. We're social beings um, and you can still be, I like, I like to use a metaphor of like a beehive, right? And we're, we're our, our home is a beehive. We all come in and out and we, but we work together. We're, we're social beings in that way. And um, if you are concerned about something with your child to listen to that, I, you know, I don't know that I've ever known that instinct to be incorrect. It might be misplaced in different places. I've never known for that to be incorrect. Um, And to pull your child in to those conversations because they know themselves, they really, really do. And they might not have all the language, but their behavior is telling you something. And to get to the bottom of that um, makes a huge difference in how you see and interact with them and how you see and interact with the world and to ask for help. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people out there to help. Um, yeah. Resources is, is so important and just connectedness. Like that's what this is all about. Just really yeah. connect with other people that they've been in the situation or willing to kind of uh, lend a hand. So, and, you know, and if you, and I think this is really important and people always forget about the family resource centers. Um, you know, every state has, and I think they're called differently in different states, but family resource centers that have 
professionals and programs and parent education on all these things a lot of times for free for people uh, that they can just access. Uh, and you can find that uh, some states have it under um, um, parent information centers. You can you can just sort of uh, look up in Google Parent Information Center, and every state has these resource centers that it, for a parent who isn't quite ready to sort of jump into somebody like me and uh, doesn't need that level of support. Um, uh, that's a great place to start because it's 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 all the pr protective factors. It builds in um, your your concrete supports and your community needs and your parent education. And that's what those places are there for. So I, I strongly recommend people reaching out to the resources within their region, um, of which there are many. I think that that's um, an important thing to highlight because I think that you mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes insurance doesn't cover things or things can get, there is obviously a financial concern associated with um, diagnosis and then the therapy that comes after that or the coach that the coaching and the help that comes. <clears throat> so the free resources as a, as a great starting point. So well, thank you, Shannon, so much for being here. This was a really great, really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And we'll put um, all your information in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for all the information you gave us. Great. Thank you so much, Rashida. Have a great day. Well, that was such a great interview. Shannon was a delight to talk to. She had so much information to provide, and she's obviously an expert in her field and has done this for so long. So again, we're going to include her information in the show notes. CuriousKidsEducational.com is her website, and I will uh, share that information. She's a great resource to, to reach out to if you are having some problems with just where to start, right? You can always do a consultation. And I thought one of the most interesting points in that conversation that stuck out to me was this concept of triggers and buttons and how to identify it in yourself. Um, we all have friction points. I think we all deal with our children's behaviors in various ways. And one of the simplest things that, that she had said was, if you and your spouse are, are in a place where maybe your child is doing something and it's really irking you or really bothering you, but not your spouse or not your partner, then that might be your trigger point. And um, that is something that we can just become more aware of. So I challenge you, you know, just even like in the next couple of days, see where you're like, you find yourself maybe frustrated with something and it's just only you. You can, like the example that she gave about the getting ready and the shoes and because maybe you were really rushed out when you were a kid, right? And you're passing that along. Like that was, it was just so fascinating to hear that from an outside perspective. So if you like this episode, share it with a friend, rate it, subscribe. Those are all things that really help us out as a podcast and to reach individuals that really need it. And obviously you can follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook, join my parents connecting Facebook group and uh, follow me on Instagram at Rashida.parentsconnecting. Until next time, happy connecting.